Hello, and welcome to the ASHI podcast. My name is Gonzalo Berman, and I serve as the Editor-in-Chief of Antimicrobial Stewardship and Healthcare Epidemiology. With the ASHI podcast, we hope to share content that is relevant, novel, thought-provoking, and consistent with the diversity of perspectives that we seek with ASHI. A special thanks goes out to the editorial team and, of course, to Shea for their ongoing support. We hope you will enjoy this podcast. Hello, and welcome back to the ASHI podcast. I'm here with my friend and colleague, Deputy Editor of ASHI, Dr. Priya Nori, for another episode of the ASHI podcast. Today, we really have a triple threat to discuss. We're really excited about this. Three papers that were published in Antimicrobial Stewardship Healthcare Epidemiology. Our guests today are Dr. Arjun Srinivasan, the Deputy Director for Program Improvement in the Division of Healthcare Quality Promotion at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. We have Dr. Nathan Shively, Medical Director of Antimicrobial Stewardship at Allegheny Valley Hospital in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And Dr. Yi Wu, Pharmacy Co-Director of Montefiore Einstein Antimicrobial Stewardship Program in the Bronx. Thank you so much for being part of the ASHI podcast. Today, as I mentioned earlier, we're going to discuss a collection of three articles published in ASHI 2023. Again, for our, our readers, our listeners, the audience, this is fully open access. Go to the ASHI website, download the articles, be sure to read and share widely. The articles cover the CDC NHSN antibiotic use and resistance module, its pros, cons, and the path forward. The first article, the pro article entitled, is the standardized antibiotic administration ratio, or the SAAR, ready for prime time, was written by Dr. Yiguo and Levy Dodds at Ashley. The con article entitled, The CDC Antimicrobial Use is Not Ready for Public Reporting or Value-Based Programs, was written by Dr. Nate Shively and Dan Morgan. And the final article entitled, National Healthcare Safety Network Antimicrobial Use Option Reporting, Finding the Path Forward, was written by Melinda Neuhauser, Amy Webb, and Dr. Arjun Srinivasan. Welcome to our program. This topic is really important uh, to our readers, particularly as we head into 2024, which marks the start of the mandatory reporting of antibiotic use and resistance data into NHSN. So I can't think of a better time to discuss this and a better place than on the FG podcast. Welcome. Thanks a lot. Great to have you all. Thank you for joining Thank us you. today. Okay, let's get right into it. So first question is, can you each briefly summarize your article and key takeaways for our readers? Let's start with the pro team represented by Dr. Iguo. Sure, the pro piece is highlight examples of the usefulness of the SAR from the perspective of stewardship programs in the hospitals around the country. And we discussed that the SAR has proven useful in identifying potential antimicrobials and locations where AU could be improved, as well as being useful in monitoring the effectiveness of efforts that made those improvements. And the measures really provide a benchmarking has been helpful in engaging both providers and administrators in stewardship efforts. And the fact that more than thousands and thousands of hospitals has been voluntarily submitting the NHSM AU option demonstrates that the hospitals are finding the SARS become useful in supporting their efforts and improve antibiotic use. That's what's the key take home points from the pro piece. E, thank you so much. All right, Nate, over to you. What are the key takeaways from your position piece that you'd like our readers to walk away with? Sure. Yeah. So I wrote the article with Dan Morgan and Dan and I acknowledge that there's a ton of utility for the SAR metric and a lot of opportunity 
to improve antimicrobial use nationally moving forward, but we tried to frame our con argument in two ways. And first, we offered a, a critique of the, the SAR metric itself as it stands now and where there's some room for improvement. And then secondly, we tried to urge caution as 2024 marks the beginning of what we think could be a slippery slope that starts with pay for reporting, but we fear could eventually end with pay for performance. And we don't think that it's ready for that at this point. And regarding the SAR itself, there's a fair amount of complexity with the metric already. There's 47 different stars that are available, but we still think there's a potential need for additional granularity around some of the unit types and the types of patients that are represented on those units. It also needs patient-level risk adjustment, which is not there now, and inclusion of resistance data in the model. I'll say that the CDC is well aware of this and has highlighted plans to incorporate those things into the SAR, but currently that's not there. We also think there's some room within the way that the antibiotics are grouped currently that can obscure some important stewardship work within those categories. Some of the categories as they stand now have some pretty broad agents and with some more narrow spectrum agents. And there's a lot of important work that happens within that that you can't currently see with the SAR. On the cautionary tale side, we brought up the examples of the Joint Commission Pneumonia Core measure, which is back from 2004, which led to unnecessary antibiotic use and didn't improve patient care. We also highlighted the CMS sepsis measure, SEP1, which we're all probably dealing with this in our hospitals now, despite increasing evidence that this bundle doesn't improve patient care. And many of our societies are calling for a change and retiring that major. CMS is marching forward with announcing a shift for pay for reporting to now pay for performance in 2026. We essentially urge just not to start down that path for the SAR prematurely. Nate, thank you. Okay, Arjun, you have the last word on this question. Yeah, absolutely. So I always love to have last word. I hate to sound like the government bureaucrat in this, but you're all right. Everybody <laughs> is correct, right? So Yi and Libby were 100% correct, right? The, the SAR is clearly useful. It was what the field wanted, right? When we conceived of a reporting platform for antibiotic use, this was what they said they wanted, right? We have to have risk-adjusted benchmarks. If we don't have that, there's nothing we can do because it's so hard to look at antibiotic use rates in a vacuum. And as he said, the fact that there are 3,000 facilities, more than half the hospitals in the country, have elected to report this data voluntarily, it clearly demonstrates that there's utility in it. There's no reason to do this right now except for your own purposes for your stewardship program. So clearly, Nathan and Dan are also correct, right? They bring up a number of valid points. And as he mentioned, we're very well aware of these. There's there's lots and lots that we can do to improve the utility of the standardized antimicrobial administration ratios. And it's one of the reasons why we're excited to have more and more hospitals reporting that information, because the more data that we have and the more smart people we have looking at that data, the more we can learn about the ways to make those improvements. And there are improvements we can make now. You know, we are getting ready to do another rebaseline of the SAR data, which is exciting because this will be the biggest rebaseline in terms of the amount of data that we have accessible to us. So we're already in the process of looking through all of the great comments that people have made. We'll be convening some technical expert panels to help us think through what are the improvements that we can make now. And then of course, we are at the forefront in NHSN on thinking about how to acquire patient level data electronically, especially with the implementation of what they call the fast healthcare interoperability resources that allow patient data, patient level data to flow into NHSN. We are already in some really exciting, very early pilots 
with that technology, but that really will be transformative because it will allow the type of true patient level risk adjusting that we don't have the ability to do now with the manual entry. I think we spend a lot of time worrying about the slippery slope that gets brought up so, so much. And what I would tell people is if you are so afraid of the slippery slope, you're never going to get on the mountain. And the mountain's a lot of fun. It's fun to ski down the mountain. So you know what? Sometimes it's okay to get on the slippery slope. Be careful. Maybe you go with the blue or the green instead of the black diamond. But sometimes the slippery slope can be an awful lot of fun and can lead to an awful lot of good things. Okay, Arjun, thank you for that. So the next question is for you as well. Since you started on this path, taking a bird's eye view, what kind of data do you hope that the NHSN AUR module will unlock for hospitals, for stewardship programs, and finally, the healthcare consumer. What is the ideal state in like five or 10 years with this? Yeah, yeah. For stewardship programs, we hope that it gives people a way to compare their use, to get a sense of where there might be opportunities to improve that use. And again, we try to be very careful with this messaging that the SAR ratios, this is purely a quantity measure. It can tell you that your use is higher or lower than use from other hospitals, but it doesn't tell you if it's better or worse. All it does is give you a place where you can go look and maybe some agent categories that you might want to pay special attention to. So that is really where I think it has been useful for hospitals. They can use that. You know, the the example I always cite is that if you're looking at your say, carbapenem use in your ICU, and it's going down by 5% per quarter, you're probably going to be pretty happy with that. And that wouldn't lead you to take a deeper look. But if it's going down by 5% per quarter, but is three times higher than other ICUs, you better believe that your stewardship program is going to take a look there to make sure that that use is justified. So I think that type of risk adjusting has been really useful. In terms of its broader utility to the larger healthcare community, I honestly don't think we're there yet. I think this is data that's useful to stewardship programs. It's not useful to consumers, to healthcare leaders. What is a CEO of a hospital supposed to do with a SAR value that's 1.5 or 1.7, right? So it's really different from things like a standardized infection ratio or other types of ratios that we use in quality reporting, most of what we measure in healthcare is binary, right? Either everybody should have the outcome, like for smoking cessation counseling or flu vaccines, or no one should have the outcome, like a healthcare-associated infection. Antibiotic use is really different. It's way more complicated. So right now, I don't think this data is useful for the healthcare consumers. It really is intended to be used by its audience, right, by the experts in stewardship. What I would love to see down the road in five-ish years is patient-level data coming into NHSN to really begin to get at that type of patient-level risk adjustment that I think all of us would love to see. Okay. So now let's bring it back to the individual hospital level. Nate and E, what do you think is the biggest struggle for individual hospitals right now trying to meet this reporting deadline? What challenges are your teams currently experiencing? Let's start with you, E. I think just like for everything we try to implement in a hospital, it does require resource, manpower, and plus time because clock is ticking. Since the final ruling from CMS require AUR to be submitted to NHSM by 2024, 
in order to do that accurately. And this does require the purchase of electronic platform through either a third-party vendor or development of an AUR reporting solution within existing EHR, it's expensive. I think CMS quoted a median cost of $187,000 is needed to build and maintain the AUR submission system per institution. And this will require lots of investment and commitment from the institution. And we have been submitting AU for years, and currently we are working through the process of AR built. From our own experience at Montefiore, we encounter many challenges from mapping of the organisms to how to extract the data accurately, process, and also how EHR rules behave in the real environment. And this build process does come with a lot of growing pains for stewardship, microlab, and infection control and IT but I'm optimistic and I'm hoping to see the light at the end of the tunnel soon. Okay, Nate, tell us about your personal struggles. I would echo a lot of that. I mean, I, I think in general, as you said, getting enough resources to put around this and personnel, expertise, financial resources has got to be a barrier for many places. I mean, we're a pretty decent size, pretty well-resourced healthcare network. We're there with AU. We're still trying to get there with AR. We've had similar struggles with mapping the isolates, as you said, and I'm sure you're probably a lot closer to this than I am because our institution, our pharmacists are the, are the rock stars of, of taking care of this. And so they're a lot closer to working with the IT folks on this. And I was talking with one of our IDC, ID pharmacists in anticipation of this and sort of asking where, where we are. And and she said that what we lack is a dedicated ID resource person that understands both sides, the EPIC side, the NHSN side, and that throws the pharmacist into the role of triaging the issues and trying to find solutions for it whenever they've got competing responsibilities and other things that they need to be doing on the clinical side. And so that's us as a, you know, we've got three ID pharmacists at our main hospital and they're busy doing their things, but there's lots of places that are, are much less well-resourced, I imagine it's got to be even more of a struggle for, for some of these other places to get up to speed in time. Okay, great. Thank you both for being so transparent about your personal struggles. But as E said, the light is at the end of the tunnel. We will all get there. That's inevitable. We will all make it. Okay, so next question is back to Arjun. Traveling around the country and speaking with different hospitals, What's your sense of the readiness of hospitals to meet this 2024 reporting deadline? Also, NHSN has a lot of resources available to hospitals. What can smaller, more resource-limited facilities do to take advantage of this? What would you like them all to know right here on the ASHI podcast? I think that the state of preparedness for AU is pretty good. There's already more than 3,000 hospitals that are already in. Lots of people are underway. I think there is a little bit more. There's just a longer track record with it, right? We've had more hospitals doing it for longer. There's a lot more experience. So I think we're in pretty good shape there. The AR is, it's a little further behind, right? The AR option was launched later than AU. There have been fewer people who have participated in that. The AR data, you know, it's, it's different. It comes out of the lab. It's a different set of stakeholders that we're having to interact with and, and bring up to speed here. They're catching up fast. There are 1,700 hospitals that have now reported their AR data. So they're closing that gap quickly. So I, I think that it's a little further behind, but I, I do think we're making progress. I do hear from people who are having issues with 
this vendor or that vendor. And, you know, that's where our, the NHSN team has been remarkable. You know, we've got some really good people. Amy Webb, who was the author on this paper with us, is like just the expert in interacting with all these systems. She's a phenomenal resource. And so we are doing everything we can to support what people need either at the individual hospital level or in interacting with the vendor. So there's a lot of work going on. You know, as you said, Priya, the goal is that we want everyone to succeed. And I'll say that for those of you who don't interact with CMS that much, that's their goal too, right? They want people to succeed. It is absolutely not their desire to find people for non-compliance. They want people to be successful in reporting this. And so I think we are absolutely all on the same team. We all have the same goal, which is we want people to have their data in so that they can have access to it. And to your second question on the resources that are available, there are a lot of resources available on the web. There's YouTube videos, there's guides for how to get enrolled, there's startup guides, there's FAQs. So there's lots and lots that's there for people who are getting started and trying to figure out what to do. And of course, the NHSN help desk is available, nhsn at cec.gov. If you have questions or you're trying to figure out how to get started or you need some individual customized support, that resource is there as well. And we've certainly taken advantage of that. And the response time is very quick and the level of technical expertise is truly impressive. So thank you and your team for that, for setting that up. You bet. Thank you. Okay. So now back to Nate, not to assign the Debbie Downer role to you in this podcast this morning. I'll take it. um, (laughs) Speak more to us from your perspective about some specific limitations that you mentioned in your piece in terms of its readiness for value-based metric. What would you like to see happen before such stewardship data is tied with hospital reimbursement, which may be many years down the road, but what do you think are the specific steps to getting there? I highlighted at the top of the podcast some of the opportunities within the SAR itself that Arjun has said are being worked on or will be worked on, things like patient-level risk adjustment, antimicrobial grouping revisions, inclusion of the antimicrobial resistance data, enough unit options to fully capture the types of patients that are cared for within them. So there are things with the SAR itself, but I think more importantly, you'd want to start to see data on using the SAR for interfacility comparison. And then if you're going to move toward pay for performance, you'd want data that facilities with higher SARs are delivering suboptimal patient care in terms of patient outcomes, right? So you want some sort of link there. And then you'd want data on strategies to put in place on how to lower the SAR, what can we put in place? How does that lower the SAR? And then once those strategies are put in place, that they produce a meaningful difference in patient outcomes, right? So I think that's that patient outcome data that we need to link back to the SAR and strategies that we put in place to lower the SAR. That's a high bar. That's a lot of data that we don't have now that we would need. And I think I would say there's probably a lot that individual facilities state, county health departments, and nationally, the CDC and NHSN can do with the data that we have within our own facilities to improve patient care. But I think that moving it toward a pay-for-performance measure before having the data in place that using it is producing meaningful benefits in patient care, that makes me think more toward what's going on with sepsis and SEP1 now, where you've got lots of teams, lots of personnel hours moving toward checking boxes that are not improving patient care. And what I worry about there, if the SAR moves in the same direction, is that you've got 
we're unlikely to get a bunch of additional resources. It's going to be the same personnel at the facilities for stewardship that will be doing that. But it'll be people that are spending efforts toward checking a box that might not be improving patient care rather than doing the important day-to-day work and the patient-facing and clinical work that we know is necessary and helpful. So it's encouraging to hear that it doesn't sound like that's planned anytime soon. And that's great because that allows us to be able to use the SAR for all the benefits that we can gain from it. And I'm looking forward to seeing more data published on how people are using this and to start using it more ourselves. We were assigned the con side. That was the goal of the con side. And the concern on the con side is just really trying to put the brakes on moving it toward a pay for performance for as long as we can, because I, I do know that that's not the intention, but also CMS sometimes moves forward with things that that may not necessarily be recommended by the community at large. And so as much as we can get out there to put the brakes on it ahead of time was kind of the goal of Dan and I. And, you know, if I can just jump in real quick, because I, I think this is really important because there's a lot of fear about this and a lot of worry about where this is going. So it's really important for people to know that the requirement for antibiotic use and resistance reporting is under a completely different part of CMS than pay-for-performance, value-based purchasing, HACRP, the Hospital Acquired Conditions Reimbursement Program that we're all familiar with, right? So those are all measures that go from an initial phase and ultimately they become performance measures, right? So there's a pathway for those to become performance measures. And that's where, as Nate's pointing out, once you put something on that pathway, it must go to a performance-based measure. That's the law, right? So CMS is not allowed to burden the public by collecting data in those programs unless it intends to either report the information publicly or pay based on performance. The antibiotic use and resistance measure is in a totally different program, right? So it is within what's known as the Promoting Interoperability Program, which many people might have known as the Meaningful Use Program. So this is a payment program within CMS whose sole intention is to improve and increase the uptake of electronic health records and electronic data transfer. Part of that program is what's called the public health data exchange objective. So part of the payment that they're making to hospitals is to try and improve the connection between healthcare data and public health agencies. That's where this part sits. And so that's why the requirement in the measure is only that you attest to the fact that you're reporting, right? That's it. That's all CMS wants to know. They are not getting any antibiotic use or resistance data. And I think that's really important for people to understand, to reassure your facility administrators, they're not getting your data. They don't want this data. All they get from us is a yes or no, is the hospital reporting. And it's not on that same path. So I think that's really, really important. So if your administrators come to you with this, oh my gosh, it's gonna be pay for reporting and they've put it on the path, uh uh they haven't put it on any path. It's in a completely different program. And it's fact, it's why this has not moved before now, because nobody wanted it on any sort of public reporting or pay for performance path. But promoting interoperability does provide that opportunity to really push enrollment through a requirement that doesn't encumber public reporting or pay for performance. And that's a long winded mention, but I think this is super, super important for all of us as stewards to know and to be really messaging on that. 
Arjun, thank you for that clarification. I've heard that from you and your colleagues before, but I can't hear it enough because it's extremely reassuring. And it does just set us all up to be on the same page and moving toward the same goals. So I'm gonna actually jump around a little bit because we're on this topic. So Arjun, while, while you're telling us more about this, can you remind us how many facilities are currently reporting and what that might look like once the regulatory mandate goes through? And then as the person who sits at the helm of all this data, what are you hopeful for in terms of what it's gonna enable you and your team to do from a public health, patient safety and policy level? Yeah, so we have about 3,000 hospitals that have reported antibiotic use data into NHSN and about, I think, 1,800 hospitals that have reported antibiotic resistance data. At the end of the reporting mandates, at the end of calendar year 24 or 25, depending on when everybody comes in, people have until you can enter the first year and just attest that you're working on reporting and submit some test files. But by the end of 25, everybody has to have all of their data in. We expect to have pretty much every acute care hospital in the country reporting antibiotic use and resistance data. The only exclusions are for hospitals that either don't have any patients in them or don't have electronic laboratory or ADT admission discharge transfer systems or don't have electronic pharmacy systems. It's a pretty small number of hospitals. So whatever that universe of hospitals ends up being probably in the four, 5,000 range is what we ultimately expect to have. What we're hoping to do is with the pairing of the antibiotic use and resistance data is to arm stewards with one more piece of information to explore use. And I think that for me, it's both on the are we using too much side and are we using not enough side, right? And I think that's a really important piece for people to understand. Everybody thinks of stewardship programs as, oh, you're just telling us to use less, to use less. But all of us in stewardship know that Another important part of what we do is tell people to use the right agent. And sometimes that means a broader spectrum agent. For example, if you have somebody who's coming in with what you think might be E. coli sepsis, it's saying, you know, this person should probably be on a carbapenem because of the Merino trial shows us that Piptazo is not the best choice for them. Or does that person need an antifungal because they've been in the ICU on broad spectrum antibiotics for a long period of time? So I think Pairing AU and AR data allows you to look and see, are there hospitals that are using tons of agents, for example, designed to treat CRE, right? So here's a hospital that's using a ton of CASAVI, but yet they don't have any CRE or they have almost no CRE in their hospital. That might be perfectly justified, right? What if it's a hospital where lots of their patients are getting transferred in and have their micro done off site? So yeah, that may be perfectly justified. However, it's something worth exploring. But from a patient safety standpoint, what about the reverse case? What if there's a hospital where there's tons of CRE, but they're not using any or very, very little of a drug like Hazavi? So you might say there, well, you know, here's a drug specifically designed for that pathogen, has a much better safety profile than things like colistin. Why aren't you guys? using that drug? Is there something that you know about the management of CRE or something that's different that you're doing that we should learn from, or should you be using more of that? So I think those are the types of opportunities that pairing AU and AR data might present.
Great, Arjun. Thank you so much. All right. So now just shifting back to the hospital perspective for a second, Nate and E, if you could indulge us, perhaps you would agree, and this has kind of been a big issue of mine for the past few years, that stewardship and infection programs are kind of perceived differently by hospital leadership. Currently, they're perhaps not on equal footing due to the differential weight of our metrics. Therefore, do you see that mandatory AUR reporting might be the path forward to perhaps leveraging more resources, more visibility and scope of our programs? Why or why not? What do you think about that? E, let's start with you. So for for me, I think unlike the common infection prevention metrics where the goal is no harm and it has been more challenging to set targets for antibiotic use without access to external or risk-adjusted data on the AU in like patient populations, I think the AUR data may provide additional insight into both the cause and the consequences of excessive HAIs caused by drug-resistant organisms. Therefore, I think the SARS enables infection control prevention and the stewardship to comprehensively review their data using an integrated approach and speak the same language in terms of benchmarked risk adjustment and HSM data. So decreasing HAI is also a common um, mutual goal for stewardship and infection prevention. I think the mandatory AUR reporting will increase on the importance and visibility of the stewardship program. In my opinion, I think that stewardship and infection prevention are equal partners and definitely should be worked together synergistically to maximize the impact. Okay, great. So actually you're seeing AUR reporting as an opportunity to collaborate and grow synergistically. That's very interesting. Nate, what do you think? I'd echo a lot of that. And I, I think that one thing we've mentioned a few times is you know, the metrics are a lot easier to understand in infection prevention than they are with antimicrobial stewardship, right? The goal is zero events. With stewardship, the goal of antibiotic use is not zero. And, and what the appropriate goal is, is perhaps debatable, perhaps subjective and, and different based on you know the unit or the patient population that you're caring for. In terms of, of gaining visibility, I mean, I certainly think regulatory pressure can help administrators dedicate resources to stewardship programs. I think we saw that with the Joint Commission requirements for stewardship programs. And so I certainly think that having the AUR reporting requirement may add to that. I suspect many facilities have already moved the necessary resources because of the Joint Commission requirement, but if they need the extra nudge, this could be that. I think that getting administrators to pay attention to and understand the data like they do for infection prevention is probably farther off. And I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing because as, as Arjun was saying, I don't know that that we've got the SAR in a mature enough stage where where we can frame it in a meaningful way to administrators or to the public yet. Yes, I'm getting resources, but I'm okay with it not quite having the level of visibility as the as the infection prevention metrics just yet. Speaking from our personal experience, we've been reporting AU since I think 2018, but it's taken the subsequent five years to translate that to our stakeholders. But thankfully, I think they finally get it because we just hammer away at them. And then something that's been really very well received by them all, especially the ICUs and the surgical units, has been the AUCAD, which for our listeners, 
definitely is addressed in your series of articles, but is also something you can explore further on the NHSN website. But as I see it as kind of like a number needed to treat or number not needed to treat to reach these benchmarks. So that has been extremely well received. Okay, so the next question is sort of open to the group. What do you think is the next frontier in terms of antibiotic use and resistance data reporting? So how can we take our lessons learned from the inpatient acute care setting and turn this sort of to the outside since we know that's where lots of this antibiotic use and resistance is occurring? So some settings that come to mind, of course, are long-term care, ambulatory care. What do you see in store for us in the next five to 10 years? Arjun, maybe you want to start? Sure. It's always been interesting to me that there's actually way more data on outpatient antibiotic use than there ever has been on the hospital side, right? Because there are those purchased data sets from these companies that collect all of this information on outpatient antibiotic prescriptions and dispensing. And there's also on the outpatient side, there's a lot more ways to assess the quality of antibiotic prescribing. And one of the advantages that we have in a lot of the outpatient practices is usually like when somebody goes in for a visit, if it's an acute visit for a respiratory illness, that's usually what gets coded as the reason for the visit. And so we have this ability to say, hey, the reason for the visit was an exacerbation of chronic bronchitis and they were prescribed a quinolone. That's not right. It was sinusitis and they were prescribed an antibiotic for that. That's not right. And so I think we do have opportunities in the outpatient setting to help us move towards assessing the quality of prescribing. And there have been some really nice projects that have been done looking at that and even embedding decision support into electronic records for improving quality prescribing in outpatient practices. So I think that's exciting and something to build on. The other place where we're really beginning to build and explore is in the long-term care setting, as you mentioned, Priya, really, really important area. There is certainly a requirement for stewardship programs in long-term care, but we don't know as much about use and what the opportunities to improve use are. And we have zero data right now, almost zero, on antibiotic use in long-term care. And so we are beginning to work with some of the pharmacy vendors in the long-term care setting. There are some companies that provide those services, and they are able to provide information on antibiotic use in long-term care. And so we're in early stages of beginning to partner with some of those companies to start taking a look at that data. So, Nate, something we didn't really mention about you up front was that you're a major leader in telehealth and telestewardship, and you're basically leading those efforts for your system. How do you see the AUR type reporting assisting with our efforts in that setting? Currently, and, and we've done work both outside of our network and within our network in terms of telestewardship. And so as of now, all of our telestewardship efforts are within network. And so I think that makes it a little bit easier for us because we have our own internal dashboards that we can use for tracking antibiotic use, but then also have the SAR that we're developing are reporting for all, all of our facilities the same way. For facilities that are outside your own network, if you're not, and he's co-author, Libby's not with us, but could have commented on Dason's approach to this, right? If you're not Dason with a huge data backend that can pull data from facilities and turn it around, but you're still doing something in telestewardship or helping outlying hospitals, you know, the SAR really may end up representing a, a nice early way to look at antimicrobial you know, use data because it might be harder to get those facilities 
on your own data backend or the same type of comparison. But now that everybody will be required to do this, it'll at least be a similar language to look at and you'll be able to compare within that. So I think that it does have some promise in that space for sure. I'll comment if I could just piggybacking on the ambulatory care stewardship in terms of you know next frontiers. I've been spending a lot of my time in that space as well. And I, while we do have a lot of data on use, and we've talked about a lot of opportunities on the inpatient side, I view ambulatory stewardship still very much as the Wild West in terms of how do we do this right. It's a really challenging space, right? On the inpatient side, We've got pharmacists that can do real-time audit and feedback on patients. You can't do that in the ambulatory care setting. It's an enormous volume of prescribers. It's an enormous volume of prescriptions. Even getting at that, some of that data, once you start to peel back the curtain a little bit, it's things like Arjun mentioned of somebody comes in for an acute visit for bronchitis, gets a fluoroquinolone, and that's inappropriate. We can capture that if it's a visit, but what we see is, and this is published, there's national data on this too, but if that patient sends a MyChart message saying that I've got the sniffles, can I have a ZPAC, right? And then that generates a ZPAC prescription that's not captured with a diagnosis code, that's not captured with a visit, but that is an antibiotic that's prescribed that is challenging to find with the data that we have and, and challenging to attribute appropriateness to. And so when we've looked across our system, it, it varies a lot by clinician, but we've got some clinicians that write 90% of their antibiotics that way. If only 10% are out of a visit that might be associated with a diagnosis code, then we've got to find other ways to be able to find how those prescriptions are happening and give feedback to clinicians on those prescriptions. That's part of what we're working on. I think there's a lot of work to do there nationally. I think it's a really exciting space, but we've got a lot to learn there still. Great. Thank you. So E, you have the last word. (laughs) What are you most looking forward to? What is the next frontier in your opinion with AUR data? I'm really excited to see the AU and the AR combined analysis whether it's not from institution levels or regional levels and national levels. I really like to see from the CDC website, I think there is different maps of AU across the country. And I wanted to see the same thing for AR across the country. I think in terms of the long-term care ambulatory care, as you know that we share patients from our ambulatory clinics, nearby long-term care facilities, We share patients, we share the bugs intuitively, how we use antibiotic and impact each other. So I think the AOR data will encourage and also bring more new ideas on how we can collaborate among each other in the community and to improve antibiotic use altogether, sort of like connecting the dots to a full circle. Great. Okay. So that concludes our podcast for today. I'm going to kick it back to our editor-in-chief to take us out. Thank you very much, Dr. Nori and the rest of our esteemed panelists. Really great discussion today. We really had the triple threat. We had Yi, uh, Arjun, and uh, Nate on the, on the call today to discuss their power trio of articles on antibiotic use, AUAR. There are some common themes that I heard that AUAR has common grounds and caveats that slippery slopes fear them not. Is that correct, Arjun? He does not fear the That's right. Slope. That paper performance are linked to outcomes would be maybe, I would say, the holy grail, but a potential endpoint, but not even close to that at this time. That if we move forward in this path, we'll need strategies on how to best address the SAR and with inputs with both its impact on outcomes and how to have a toolkit, so to speak, for our stewards on how to best approach 
and interpret and manage SARS as they do inter-hospital comparabilities. I think that Arjun also debunked the idea that this was going down the path of paper performance, that AUAR really serves a different function, which is really to heighten public health reporting through electronic mechanisms. It's all been a really encouraging and very lively discussion. Now, it seems you all get on pretty well for a pro-con debate. I'm assuming you're still going to be friends at the next Chase Spring. Is that correct? It's the type of pro-con where everybody's right. So, of course, we can still be friends. Fantastic. Nay and I have a virtual fist pump. (laughs) (laughs) Too bad this is only an audio medium and not an audio and visual medium. (laughs) Really enjoyed this. For our readers, again, these three articles are found on the ASHI website, published in September and October of 2023. With that in mind, I also want to promote an upcoming section. We have a call for articles for a special collection, which is environmental sustainability in infection prevention and antimicrobial stewardship. So if that tickles your fancy and you have some projects and manuscripts or ideas in the works, send them our way. Keep an eye out on that section of the website. We'll be publishing things in real time as they go through process, production, and acceptance. Thank you again for tuning into the Ashley podcast. 